We're back. We're back. This is a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, dude. How are things? I'm good. I feel good. I feel alive and well. I have. Yeah, you sound alive, man. You sound really alive right now. You know what's funny is that like, like if I talk, if I call my parents, which I do like once a week, they'll be like, "How you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm fine." Like everything here is the same as it was. And like I like I think there are things I could tell them, and I never do. Like I'm just like. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it's the same shit here. Like, meanwhile, I could have, like, had cancer that week, but I just don't bother. Like, it's just too much. Yeah, I don't want to uh, burden them with anything, like, any more onerous than, like, you know, like, I haven't been sleeping that well or whatever. Because, like, I, I worry that they're just going to talk about it. They don't have a lot, like, that much else going on. And so the idea of, like, talking to them a week later and they were like, have you have you addressed your sleep issues? Oh, my like, God. No, I just, like, had yeah. a bad, I, like, had coffee at 5 p.m. and my body sucks. That's uh, what the issue is. It's brutal. Like, if, if my folks visit... I can't tell them there's something like wrong in the house because they will not shut the fuck up until like it's been addressed. I'll be like, well, that table leg's wobbly. And like my dad will be like, rah, 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 rah. Well, we have to do something. It can't, it can't be like that. And my mom will be like, like, go downstairs and get a screwdriver, like yelling at him. And I'm like, no, no, no. All of you just. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I like that this is like the Gentile version of how my family would handle this problem. Because mine would just be my dad in the background being like, you got to get a shim. And my mom would be like, dad says you should get a shim. I don't know. I don't know why he's saying that. It all, it all happens. And it's going to happen to me. And I don't look forward to it. It's <laughs> absolutely brutal. Hey, we have a guest. So instead of oh, loading. Wow. Why were we talking about tables? For yeah. So long? Instead of unloading all of my problems on my parents, I'm going to unload them on legendary uh, TV producer and creator Michael Schur, the man behind Parks and wow, Recreation, The Good Place, and the Rutherford Falls on Peacock. Mike Schur, how you doing? I'm doing fine, gentlemen. How are you? Pretty good. You know, we're talking about uh, talk. My table's got a wobbly. Yeah, leg. I was. I was gonna. I have some suggestions for you later that we don't All have right, to cool. do it over the air. But oh yeah, I've got. I've got a. I've got a shim guy. I can send you. His oh name. nice. <laughs> Actually, I had to fix. I had to fix chairs last night, and I was like, well, this requires an Allen wrench. I have a Allen wrench repository from like everything I've ever assembled. And I'm like, I definitely have an Allen wrench for that. And I, <laughs> and I tightened up some. Are like, they all exactly the same size? I'm imagining. No, they're all like, they're all like one, one thousandth of a fucking nanometer uh, different. And they won't fit unless they're that exact size. They won't like, they, the room for error with Allen wrenches is shockingly low. And I, I resent them for that. Can I tell you a story about an Allen wrench? Please God, that's why we had you on. So I, I, from time to time, my garbage disposal gets just like stops working, you know. And and we called a, a guy, and he came over and fixed it. And he would fix it in in eight seconds. He would come over, <laughs> and eight seconds later, he'd go like, "You're all set." And then we would pay him like eighty five dollars. And so the seventh <laughs> time it happened, I I summoned up every ounce of courage in my body. And I said, can you just show me what you're doing so that I can do it myself next time? And I, I'm the least handy person in the world. I cannot fix anything. And he was like, sure. And this very nice guy was like, here's what you do. You go down here and you take this Allen wrench and you put it in here and you twist it like this. And then that gets it going again. And then you're fine. And so since that day, about three years ago, my garbage disposal has stopped working half a dozen times. And as soon as it does, I become like the most uh, confident person in the world with my wife. I'm like, I got, honey, I got this. And I go in and I get the Allen wrench. By the way, he gave me the Allen wrench. He was like, you can just keep this. I have Damn, what a value. And I went in and I was like, hey, I got it. And I, I bend down and I kind of grunt a little and I like make a couple noises down here. I got this in it. And I, and I do the thing and then it works. And I've never felt 
more uh, manly in my life, which is admittedly a very low bar. But the interesting thing about this, because it legitimately makes me feel good to be able to use an Allen wrench to fix a problem in my house, it has not in any way inspired me to try to learn how to fix more things in my house. This is it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Done. This is the one thing I can do, and I do it really well with an Allen wrench, and then I'm done. You got to find one rudimentary repair that you can get. Like I can do like basic, uh, like replacing two parts of a toilet. Like I can do that, you know, with some confidence. <laughs> yeah, the seat. Yeah, well, I could do, but the, also the flapper and the I can replace the little handle and mm-hmm. stuff. Like I've, you know, we're pretty hard on toilets over here, Drew. Uh, <laughs> but it is the sort of thing where, like, now that I know how to do that, like, it's not the sort of. I, like I'm still afraid to try to fix anything else. Like anything that could potentially put water on the floor oh, or like no. make me accountable to the person living below me in this building. Like I'm not gonna Mm-mm. attempt. Mm-mm. I do love uh, like if I fix something, like if I identify the problem, I immediately proudly announce it to the house as if I were the handyman. It's like, well, what you got right there? The problem right there is the flapper. <laughs> like I automatically tell everybody that. And by the Your way, dog just looking at you with its head cocked and you're yeah, like, well, the- that's a classic case of a strip screw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, always, always I'll do that. I'll be like, well, you know, see right there. It's just loose. We got, we had, we had to tighten it up and I did it. And the other thing is that Mike, you're exactly right. Like it's amazing. If you just ask a, a basic repair man, like for advice and stuff, they'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's worth more than them fixing the actual thing. Yeah. Like, Yes. Like, we had a guy fix the dishwasher, because this is going to be really fascinating. We had a guy fix the dishwasher, because it was all it was all clogged up, and it was fucking leaking. And he's like, we use the fucking tablets for the dishwasher. And he's like, never use those, because they get all gummed up. And, like, the temperature of the water in your dishwasher has to be, like, 102 Fahrenheit exactly or something. Otherwise, they all get all gummed up. And so we never have bought for it since then, and now, like, it works. So, like, I'm like, wow, what value. I feel like a real man. <laughs> anyway, we should talk to you about TV. How yeah. I disagree. I think the home appliance repair chat is a really valuable <laughs> direction for us to go in. Here. So uh, Mike uh, should know, or we, our listeners should know, that Mike's uh, background has a legendary background in blogging. Is Kendra Tremendous is the, uh, at the fantastic and now deceased firejoemorgan.com. And his career has struggled ever since then, and I mm-hmm. want to talk about that with you, yeah. because obviously uh, you created Parks and Recreation, <laughs> and you have Rutherford Falls, which is on Peacock now. Uh, let me we ask it. you. We finished it. You did? Oh. Yeah, man. It's really nice. We liked it a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I was very uh, happy with how it turned out. It was a weird thing to do to make TV during this pandemic, and it uh, was not, I would say, in the strictest sense, enjoyable. But uh, Right. But it was. Uh, but I'm really happy we were. We had worked on that. Ed Helms and I started talking about that show like six years ago or something. Five years ago, 2016, and and we were in the middle of our production meeting for the pilot, and we were so excited and we were getting ready. And then I got a text from Universal Television saying like, "Hey, we're shutting everything down." At the time, it was like we're going to shut down for two weeks and we're going to see what so we see where we are. And we were like, "Well, okay, this sucks, but we can wait two weeks." And then that was March. 11th of that was that was yeah. rudy gobert day is when it was that was whatever whatever day that was oh my god yeah it was <laughs> the, the two weeks thing is like really triggering some memories too because i remember that was like the case for us too we were like well we better like go to the restaurant now before uh it closes yeah for two weeks yeah and like yeah that was just some real naive shit Our, we had very little riding on it we just we went to the restaurant anyway it was dumb but yeah we we went to uh 
we went out, my wife actually went out to dinner with a bunch of friends and they were jocularly sort of saying like, well, who knows when we'll be able to do this again. And it was, and in the, and everyone said it was a month or whatever, maybe that the most, our kids were about to go on spring break. It was like, well, when spring breaks over, it'll be fine. So that was March. And then we started shooting that in September, I think. And then, and finished right, right after the holidays. And it was, you know, it's whenever you talk about this stuff, and I'm sure you have had this problem too, you have to qualify everything by saying like, this isn't a real problem. Like this isn't the problems that we had weren't actual problems. They were fake Hollywood problems. Like, Oh, we had to wear masks and face shields while we made our, our TV show. It wasn't like sickness and, and death and trauma, but it was for, for in the world of television, it was a very weird experience and very hard and to, to pull off. And, you know, people were, as a producer and a show creator, you're like responsible for the lives and safety of the people who work on your show. And that was a constant stress that I was, I was just like, we were balancing people wanted to work. People had been out of work for six months. And so we were balancing like people's need for, for, you know, to pay rent and stuff with the, with the date relative danger of going to work every day. And that was very stressful, but right. Again, Cause it's not just writers and producers and actors and sort of the high profile people on the project to make the show, it's like, it's a fucking city. It's, you know, mm-hmm. electricians and and set designers and just all these people that have to be protected. What were the logistics you guys had to do? Because if it was September 2020, that was like right in the middle of the second spike. What did you have to do to make sure everyone was protected? It was, it was actually at a low point in LA. September was pretty good out here. Like September was, was it, it got worse and worse as we went along. When we started, so we tested, every, we tested everybody. At the beginning, we tested everybody five times a week. Some some people were getting tested seven times a week or eight times a week. Um, and at the beginning, right when we started, we had like one positive test maybe every couple weeks. And everything would stop and we would be very careful and we would make sure we do contact tracing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it seemed manageable. And then as we went through October, November and into December, December is when the real spike happened out here. And so in December, we were getting a, almost one positive test a day. And that's when it got really dicey. And there was a moment where uh, we had, a, you know, we were, so we were rapid testing everybody every day. And then most of the actors were being also lab tested Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we had a, a day when we had done a rapid test on a crew member on a Monday and the, or sorry, a, a lab test on a Monday. And then on the Tuesday, there was a, a bunch of scenes that were shot for the final episode that were, in a r- small room with everyone as distance as we could be, but just because of the logistics, the people were within six feet of each other. And then halfway through, or I guess at the end of that day, the lab test for this crew member came back from the day before positive. And this person had been within six feet of a bunch of actors in a small room. And the actors obviously can't wear masks. So it was a really like scary moment because there it was just like now we don't know we won't and we won't know maybe for a few days whether like e- literally everyone on the crew and everyone in the cast is positive and we shut down we just shut down like we went to we were we were three days away from finishing the last episode we went to universal and we we're like we know this is expensive but we, we, nobody feels safe and to their credit they were like okay like they, they 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 we were basically saying like you need to we're asking you to voluntarily lose five million dollars is basically what we were saying and they said that's fine like the and that was the good thing about it was that everybody was sort of no one um it wasn't like the the triangle 
uh, factory fire or something where the management was utterly unconcerned with uh, with the safety of the employees. Like everybody was concerned with everything. And so they were very good partners and everybody was on their best behavior. And so we shut down all the way through the holidays and then came back in February or March, I think, and finished shooting that episode, which is really uh, bizarre. Um, so it, you know, logistically it was, it was a, it was a real puzzle. And the good part of it was, I think it, I think everyone understood exactly what was happening. Nobody, nobody took it for granted. Nobody thought it wasn't a big deal. Like we weren't dealing with people who were trying to downplay the, the misery and the uncomfortableness of the situation. Um, and the sad thing was like, you know, it, the fun part of making TV is that you're all on this big set, like you talking and collaborating and people pitch jokes and whatever. And all of that stuff was sort of taken away because you, it was hard to even, there was a limited number of people who could be on the set at any one time. You know, there was a maximum number of, like they took the size of the studio, divided it by 144 square feet. And then that was the number of people who were even allowed to be in the soundstage at any given time. And there was a guy or a lady who would stand outside with a counter, like an umpire ball and strike counter. And as people walked in and out to say like, okay, we're at, we're at 102 people. Nobody else can come in. So you had to wait for someone else to come out before you could go in. It just made the whole thing very weird and very sort of non-collaborative. And that was the, creatively, that was the bummer of it. But, you know, it was cool that everyone sort of pulled through and, and did his or her job and made it, made a TV show. That was, that was really neat. It was, I, it feels very, um, feels like having run a like an ultra marathon or something uh that that we accomplished it for the uh, for the actors did you have to write scenes in a way like did you have a, did you have to account for covid in running scenes with them like like you did you have to limit like hugging scenes or anything like that <laughs> no i mean it no like, it's a good question and the answer is yes like we, there were definitely scenes that we had written and we were like well we can't do this like can't have this many people in a in a car or whatever like a, you know and it's not that you couldn't, it's just that you knew how hard it would become if you tried to do that. So we rewrote a bunch of stuff to account for, to try to take all that stuff into account and to and to make sure that things were producible. I mean, we have this, so we have a visual effects guy named David Neednagel who worked, did all the visual effects on The Good Place, who's a genius. And he spent his time, the six months between March and September, he spent basically developing a way to make fake people that looked realistic so that when we shot a crowd scene, we could get a certain number of background performers, extras say, if we wanted a crowd of 200 people, we would get 50 people. And then he put fake people like computer people in to, and mix them into the background. And you can't tell because they're mostly just sort of standing there. And if they're far enough away, you can't tell that they're little computer people. Holy shit. Yeah. And so, Is that like I mean, the, as somebody who's watched those crowd scenes, right? <laughs> yeah. I can't say that I know it wasn't like, you know, watching an NBA game during in the bubble where there's like, people on zoom and you're like wow all these guys have really huge faces <laughs> like this was like it was all very realistic yeah. in that way and that's something i've noticed a lot watching shows during that were you know made during this period like there are a few that that we liked that wrapped up during this and like superstore was one where there it was really like you could tell that there were just scenes that would have like either two people in them or three people in them yep. but that was it and this had a lot of like you know someone making a speech in front of a crowded town square of people all of whom have lines mm-hmm and that I, man, the pe- I had no the idea people that who have lines, magic. Yeah, the people who have lines in those scenes, and you know, uh, uh, not an insignificant number of other people, probably thirty to fifty other people, and then most of the additional people are little computer computer creatures. 
Could, so, could you have pulled a Peter Jackson and made some of those people like orcs and Urukai <laughs> and shit like that? Well, he he loves David loves Easter eggs, and so he 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 put some people in. You can't even see it really, but he he would put some people in like in certain T-shirts with certain logos from previous shows we've worked on together, or he would put like little he would drop little Easter eggs in because he was like, as long as I'm processing this entire shot, I might as well have some fun. So the, yeah, there were some there were some little there were some little tiny 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 easter eggs that you i don't even know if you can see but yeah are there any you dirty closely, you can see manny ramirez is actually in every <laughs> crowd scene are there any dirty easter eggs like how joe camel if you turn him upside down he's a penis like is there anything like that no david is a very chaste gentleman he would not oh do such a thing. Well, that's uh, very disappointing yeah but that, that it was everyone did stuff like that like everyone killed six months by just goofing around and stuff and, and some people like david neednoggle did it to the benefit of the show that we were working on and other people like me didn't we just yeah. sat around sat around doing nothing <laughs> yeah i would have done nothing i i think i i learned how to make bread and then i was like i fucking hate making bread and that was <laughs> yeah the- I, it took me like 12 about 13 months to develop any skill during this which was and that skill is opening oysters which i'm now comfortable hey doing. Yeah. that's that's I, not the whole first year i mostly focused on gaining weight in my under chin and neck area <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did, which, was, which I'm very proud of? I read Moby Dick. I had never read oh, Moby Dick Oh, that's before. my favorite book. It I, is a great book, isn't I, it? I'm literally a college English major, and I had never read Moby Dick. And so I was like, look, if I don't do it right now, I'm never going to do it. Like, I can't go anywhere. I have nothing to do. I'm going to read Moby Dick. And God damn, is that a good book. This, yeah. is, this is my hot take on Moby Dick. It's really good. Well, because it's entertaining. Like, it's not yeah. boring. Yeah. Well, I, was like, right. I was like, oh, God, it's so thick in school. I was like... This is going to blow. And then, like, a guy dies in a vat of whale fat, and I'm like, this fucking rules. <laughs> yeah. And it's got a bunch of, like, jokes and, like, weird, like, sort of antic writing in it. Like, it's, like, you can feel that Melville's on the fucking edge of sanity in writing it, which is a pretty cool uh, place to be uh, as long as you don't tip over onto the, you know, the Michelle Welbeck side of the, the continuum. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I think I recommend it to everybody, but uh, it's that's wild. Cool. So, yeah. I read that. And then I read I, right after that, I was like, let's keep this going. And I read War and Peace, which I've never read. He, was he that never good? Read that. Here's my review of War and Peace. Ready? Yeah. Not bad. Really? Yeah. Because I was like, that one I'm like, because I've read like uh, Brothers Karamazov and stuff, and I'm like, this is pretty pretty painful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, it's like all there's a lot of soap opera stuff in it, and the soap opera stuff is great. Like all the like princes and princesses who pledge their love to each other and then, and then like do other stuff and disappear and like go to whatever. That all that stuff is great. What's not amazing to me is there's a, you have to like really care about the Napoleonic Wars, like really care <laughs> at a very deep level in order to find it interesting because it's it's there are lo- lengthy sections, like 60-page sections that just get into like Napoleon's battle strategy and I'm kind of like, ah, yeah, I don't really care that much. But It's cool that they mixed in some dad programming for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Some, yeah. Like history channel voiceover <laughs> chapters to break up the romance stuff. Yeah, for like for, for dads... I would say Tom Clancy is like a significant upgrade on on War and Peace. You know, like it's like way more fun to read that kind of war stuff than it is to read about like the 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 Austrian battles of the Napoleonic Wars. That's my truly take. one of the most deranged scouting comps I've ever heard. The idea of being like when Dickens is Dickens, he's Tom Clancy. Okay, like. It's just a very- uh, speaking of. Uh- very large, impossible to parse subjects. Baseball. You're a baseball nice. person, Mike Sure. Yes, I we am. have to talk about uh, 
You came on at just the right time because just last night before this podcast recorded, uh, Garrett Cole of the Yankees gave a press conference uh, which he was asked about uh, spider tack, which has become essentially so prevalent that it is now it's now a crisis. I don't know how Mike Lupica feels about it. I'm sure he's very, very pissed off in a diaper somewhere about it. <laughs> but uh, all of the details have come out. There was a great report uh, by Alex Pruitt and uh, Stephanie Epstein at Sports Illustrated about it. And Lindsay Adler, our old friend Lindsay, Lindsay Adler at The Athletic, did a whole breakdown of exactly what's going on where the the tacky substances being applied to baseballs are so uh, are so tacky that you can just stick it to your fucking hand and it just stays like like one of those velcro mitts with like a really fuzzy tennis ball attached. Yeah. And There's a lot of like body horror stuff in that Sports Illustrated story, like yeah. the logo getting ripped off the baseball because of how sticky the shit was. Yeah, yeah. and and Adler said like they'll use like boiled Coca Cola and mix it with like sunscreen and resin and stuff like that. Anyway, the point is, uh, the reason I find this to be uh, an issue with baseball is not out of moral concern, because I didn't give a shit about steroids either, but because uh, we are on track for the lowest batting average collectively in baseball ever in the, in the literal history of the sport. And I never thought that was possible, because I thought like back when Cy Young was pitching, like you got like one hit a week, and that was like a huge triumph and shit <laughs> like that. So then, uh, make sure the question is, is this a problem for you? And how does uh, baseball unfuck it? And do you believe baseball can unfuck it? Yeah, it is a problem because when the whole league is hitting 230, the game is the game starts to collapse, you know? Yes. I think. And, and you know, you look at the lineups. This is We're in June now, and you look at the lineups of any major league team, and there's a bunch of guys hitting under 200. And it used to be when we were children – uh, you know, anyone hitting under 200 in June was sent to the minors. You just, that was not, that was not possible that you could be on a major right. roster, much less in a starting lineup and be hitting 161, which Miguel Sano was hitting in the cleanup spot for the twins last night. And when the game started. Oh so, and I've had a lot of debates with a lot of my friends who love baseball about what can be done. The most popular suggestion is, is eliminating the shift because we've all, if you watch baseball, you've seen, at some point in every game, a rocket up the middle that is a clear ba- has been a base hit all my life, and it is now an easy grounder to the shortstop or second baseman who's playing right behind the second base bag. Or worse is the left-handed hitter's ripped line drive into right center that bounces harmlessly 12 feet in front of a perfectly positioned third baseman who's playing the yeah, softball position getting thrown out from shallow right. <laughs> yeah. One of the, and the coldest owns in sports. I know it's so sad. So, you know, there's the two guys on each side of second base solution. There's the everybody has to start on the dirt solution. But this thing feels really real to me. And I don't know whether it's just wishful thinking, but it feels really real to me because, again, when we were children, every team had one guy who threw 96 and that guy was your closer. It was Jeff Reardon or Lee Smith or whoever. That was. There was one guy who did that. And now if you can't throw 96, you don't make a major league roster at all and guys who were throwing 98 are being lit up. And so the the idea that this spin rate thing which has been the main pitching advanced metric revolution I think of the last 10 years. Yes. This thing feels really real to me. This feels like and it feels like this is the problem to me. And I, and maybe that's wishful thinking that there's one thing you could do that would even out the offense defense issue, but you know when Cole um 
had his last start and and didn't use that whatever he is using he was like they scored five runs off him and when he was using it before that he was unhittable and so that's one data point we need about a ten thousand more for it to mean anything but i really do think i think they should unfuck it i think that this is a i think this is a this feels real and i think that the the future that they're about we're about to enter of like 10 they say they claim eight to ten random checks per game is i think you're gonna see a difference i think these guys are have been like oh this is how you throw unhittable 94 mile an hour sliders with crazy movement and once they don't have the ability to do that anymore i think you're gonna see the offense tick back up that's my hope at least uh because it really is it really is boring i'm a baseball apologist i will always be a baseball apologist but man, it is hard to watch these games sometimes because it's it's three hits a, a team, and that's not when the ball isn't in play for you know sixty percent of the game. It makes an already slow game even slower and more boring. And I don't know when you go back and forth, when you toggle back and forth between baseball and the NBA playoffs, you're like, oh yeah, the sport baseball has no future. Like you can't you can't compete with this. Like Donovan Mitchell last night in the second half hitting like 11 threes in the second half and the crowd going crazy. That's that half of basketball was in that random one playoff game and game one of the Western semifinals is more exciting than the collective amount of excitement that's been generated by a week of baseball. So maybe you just didn't appreciate the majesty of Drew Smith walking Cedric Mullins during a 10 to two Mets loss. By the way, I mean, there is a, I mean, Cole is like the sort of the perfect poster child for it because he was traded from the Pirates to the Astros. And we know the Astros are the Astros. It's cheating ass Astros. And his uh, strikeout rate fucking skyrocketed the second he joined the Astros. And what's funny about that is the Astros had this reputation as like this laboratory of big ideas and like, you know, data that no other team, you know, had access to. And that was probably true, but they were also like a fucking cheating farm. Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> and so like trash cans and jerking off into gloves and shit. And that's what it seems like is the case here, that there was this, <laughs> the, uh, there was a, a great quote from Brent Strom, who's their pitching coach, that some uh, friend resurfaced in a DM recently from 2020, where he like went out of his way to be like, well, for one thing, we never brought in an outside chemist to help develop stuff that made uh, our pitchers hand stickier. And anyone who says we did like that would be imprecise. And it was like, it basically is a way of saying like, it's sort of the, like, you know, my t-shirt saying that I oppose ethnic cleansing is raising questions. <laughs> answered by my t-shirt. <laughs> but it's also like one of those deals where it's like, so you had an in-house chemist, you're saying, yeah, like everybody knew you did. All right, cool. Like, thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, I, but the thing with this is like, you know, banging on trash cans is a thing that it appears one team did. And this is a thing that it appears every team is doing. And so there's a difference between one team cheating to get an advantage in one arena of the game and everyone in on every team being like, oh, here's what you all you have to do is mix X and Y and Z. And then your spin rate goes up 12% and then you become unhittable. The thing, the thing, this is a classic case too, like the Astros having the best team in the best lineup and then also cheating, uh, which uh, as a new England Patriots fan uh, is a, is a very familiar (laughs) scenario for me. (laughs) (laughs) So Garrett Cole has always been amazing. Like when he was amazing on the pirates, his, he threw four pitches and they were all like plus plus pitches, his curve, his fastball, his slider, his everything he threw was ridiculous, and he had really good control, and he was always amazing. And then it's like those are the guys 
those are always the guys at the cutting edge of experimentation, call it, and uh, and and pushing the envelope because they're competition monsters and they want to dominate even more than they're dominating. So look, this whole thing isn't Garrett Cole's fault. What is Garrett Cole's fault is not having any kind of answer at all when asked the question of whether he was doing what the, he was accused of doing, which I don't understand how you don't have an answer prepared for that. But boy, did he not have an answer prepared for that when he was asked he about should it. He should have time drunk. not giving his answer, too, which was good. <laughs> yeah. so anytime it's just like super dilatory and like being like, oh, you're breaking up. I'm sorry I'm losing you here. It's just yeah. like incredible. Yeah, he waited. He paused for it was the longest pause I think I've ever heard in in an answer like it it was it seemed to be a two and a half minute pause when he was like, have you ever used this stuff? And then he just didn't know his brain fritzed out. He didn't know what to say. Yeah. Anytime they can reasonably say that, like, Trevor Bauer handled this question better than you, <laughs> like, you have absolutely biffed it. It's so annoying when he's right and makes a good point about stuff. I'm like, oh, like, you know, the click hole headline just shows up right in my brain yeah. in a yep. second. Well, there's a whole, like, narrative of this that you could tell as, like, a story of pettiness. Because, like, Cole and Bauer were college teammates. They, Bauer hates Cole and said that he bullied him. Uh, and I don't know the story behind any of this. But like in 2018, when Bauer was like, the only way to make a pitch spin like this is if you're using stuff on your hands. Now, I would never do that. But like what he was referring to was Cole's spin rate bumping when he went from the Pirates to the Astros in 2018. And then Bauer was like, I've experimented. I've tried different ways of doing it. There's no other way uh, but cheating, which I won't do. And then in 2019, suddenly he uh, is spinning the ball exactly the way that that Bauer did and it's like or the way that uh, Cole did and I think that there's like you don't want to tell it as like a story of of two assholes having a fight on you know online and through uh like the driveline pitching laboratory or whatever but there's clearly some element there where like Bauer was like you can't do this unless you cheat and then he starts doing it like that's basically you know the proof that you need that this is the only way to get a pitch because the pitches aren't moving faster they're just spinning more yeah the one guy that that's different is DeGrom because yes, I'm trying to write about that. Now. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. yeah. Like DeGrom's spin rate has increased, but it apparently, according to what I've read, has increased only uh, in direct uh, relation to how much faster his actual pitches are. Right. So, right. So if you, if you throw 95 and then you can now throw 98, the ball is going to rotate faster. And apparently there's no additional spin rate. I think it was Jeff Passan who tweeted about this yesterday that 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 accounts for the increase in velocity accounts for the increase in spin rate which is which is i hope true because i always want to believe part of what's great about being a baseball fan is believing that people like jacob de gram are possible that that, yeah. they, that there are people who it's why like i it's why i always wanted to know definitively whether Pujols was using steroids because i at the, at his height of hitting with the cardinals in the last few years of him on the Cardinals, I just was like, I just want to think, I want to believe that a guy who hits this well is possible without cheating. And that, and so I now hope the same thing for DeGrom. I hope it's not, it's not boiled Coca-Cola and resin or whatever. I hope it's just like, he's a freak and it's, that makes it so much more enjoyable to watch him pitch. And it makes me root for his ERA to tick down from 0.62 to 0.61 in his next start. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you can know in the back of your mind that he's probably doing some shady shit. But you can actively deny it because it's more fun that way. You know <laughs> well, what I mean? There's an alternate explanation with DeGrom. There really isn't in terms of with the other stuff, with the spinning. With DeGrom, I've watched some videos, like real pervert shit that actually that Justin Halpern said. <laughs> you ate the tape! Like, like a 50-minute PowerPoint presentation. And what they basically like came down to is like he decided to like 
stand like tilt his body two inches back further on his delivery. Like he watched a bunch of tape, then he spent all off season learning to do it and like drilled it into his fucking muscle memory, like in a way that I would not be able to do over like any amount of time with any task. And then suddenly he's throwing 101 miles an hour. And that like, I don't know, you know, if it exactly works like that. Like it seems a little magical, but it's definitely better than like, got an injection in his ass or like whatever. Yeah. Boiled Coke and dipped his hand in it came out like whatever Winnie the Poohing it. And now throws the ball that spins a third more than it did before. I definitely, when I was a kid, I thought like, like I saw a little big, big league where like, you know, the kid busts his arm. And so like, it gives him this weird hitch motion where he can throw a thousand miles an hour. And I was like, you know, I bet if I just tweak something, I could be a major league. And that's just the key to it all. Just the motion. Can I interest you in a 15-minute video of an MIT physics professor debunking Deflategate? Because I have that bookmarked. <laughs> no, fuck off with that. <laughs> I have it bookmarked. I can send it to you if you want it. That's what I'm saying. Everyone has a different definition of what the dark web is. You know, there's like the SVU one. Then there's the one that actually exists where you can like hire hitmen. Mine is is knowing that that video is out there somewhere and like could be accessed. <laughs> uh, I do want to go back, uh, Mike, and talk to you because you you talked about uh, banning the uh, the infield shift. Um, so when we started blogging, and, and you were I think, I'm almost certain that, that Fire Joe Morgan existed before I started blogging, um, you know, one of the, the sort of the main thrust of Fire Joe Morgan was taking aim at local hometown columnists who didn't really have a good grasp of, you know, I, I hate using the word sabermetrics because I think it's been, you know, that and analytics have been buried you know, they've just been, they've been used so much, they don't really mean anything anymore. But essentially it was, you know, basically old fart takes about, you know, I remember the guy who, the only stat that mattered to him was ABAB, a beer and a brat, and he was bitching about <laughs> war. And, like and I remember you took it down. And it's weird because it's now 10, 15 years later. And like, I, you know, I didn't like the Astros, apart from the basic, you know, the, the basic stupid cheating they were doing, but they were essentially operating as bloodlessly and as efficiently as they could in a sort of, uh, you know, in this in the same way that the Houston Rockets, in in a lot of ways, I felt broke basketball when Harden was around, when they were just like, look, we can just take, we can just be fouled at the three-point line and we'll score 100 points a game, 120 points a game guaranteed. And so I feel like I have drifted from being the person who's like, yeah, man, fuck all those old people, to being an old person Who's like, oh, these people, they've gone too far with their mad science with all this shit. And I wanted to ask you if you have felt the same way over that time, or if it's just me really just naturally becoming a cantankerous old piece of shit. Uh, I mean, in general, I'm going to say most of it is you being a cantankerous old piece of shit. Fair. Uh, Fair. But I I know what you mean. I have had that thought sometimes. I I have caught myself having thoughts that, that... 26 year old me would have made fun of more of them in baseball than basketball. I like basketball now more than I used to. I like the three point shot. I think that Trey young and Damian Lillard and whoever taking 32 foot three pointers uh, on fast breaks and drilling them is more exciting than low post play. And so I like the new basketball more, I think than a lot of people do. Um, I, I have a specific problem with James Harden, which is that I don't know why anyone won't go with me on this, but James Harden is not a particularly good three point shooter. If you look at his, if you look at his numbers, he's most years shot, you know, 35%, 36%, 37%. He just takes more of them than everybody else. 
And I objected to Daryl Morey saying he was an offensive weapon, the likes of which we've never seen, in part because I sort of felt like, well, if anybody took 14 three-pointers a game and hit five of them, uh, that person is going to lead the league in three-pointers. And so I think the way that we the way that we've analyzed some of the new math in the league is weird and I don't I don't agree with it or I don't I don't I don't find it convincing but I do like that game more just personally personal preference I have had that thought in baseball I've definitely thought um at times that the the way that things have gone both in pitching and in pitching and defense and hitting and everything else has made that game more boring which is a bummer because I've again a baseball apologist I've always said if you think baseball is boring, it's just because you you just don't like the game or because you don't have any interest in really looking at what's going on. The pace of play is not the problem in baseball to me. It's it's the actual gameplay itself. So yeah, I've definitely found myself making observations that I think a younger version of me would be ruthlessly mocking on a very primitive blogspot uh, site uh, <laughs> that that has no graphics or pictures or anything else. But um, but not not that frequently, honestly. Like I, I, I don't think that the changes that need to happen are significant in baseball. I think that they, they need to do things like make sure guys aren't using spider tack and maybe alter the shift a little bit or something. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I don't the, it's, it, is, it both is a crisis and is not a crisis to me. I think it's a crisis that can be fixed somehow and i i just hope that you know baseball has always been the slowest sport to react and change and alter itself because it's obsessed with its own history and it has this weird fetish for tradition that other sports don't have and they need to get over that very quickly or the you know the median age of a baseball fan as we all know is the highest of any major sport and it's only going to keep getting higher unless they do something and it's basically like they need to turn the game over to to fernando tatis jr they just need to let him run things <laughs> did you see the, did you guys see the thing that happened the other day i think in the college world series where a guy hit a had like a i think a walk-off grand slam or at least a grand slam and the ump took off his mask and yelled at him yeah, yeah the video is incredible it is because it's like you think you're watching one type of video and then suddenly you're watching a totally different type of video <laughs> no it's like a snuff like film. it's one it's like a cool baseball <laughs> thing and then just some fucking cop yeah it's like a boiled ham charges out from behind the plate and it's like yo this is actually about me now you're out of here yeah like, that's like, such a cock the part of the crisis in baseball to me is that there are guys like that and they need to get rid of them they need to like that guy should have been fired on the spot like you cannot yeah. that kid is 20 years old or whatever he hit a grand slam in the college world series and within three seconds the ump is ripping off his mask and barking at him that guy needs to go like that guy sucks and all of that that attitude needs to be ripped out of baseball immediately or it has no future that's my hot and take. to me that's like that always felt to me like the part where like the fire drum morgan stuff like aligned the most with me is that like just that, like, assholes should stop or should be quieter, you know? Like, that makes sense. I think the thing that kept coming to me while you were describing, I think very accurately, the way that, like, sort of that more nuanced understanding of the game has led us to this, like, less enjoyable version of the game, is that there's, like, a sort of a betrayal in it. Like, for everybody that cared about that stuff, where you were like, well, there's a smarter way of, you know, to do all this. There's like, and there's more interesting things to talk about than a beer and a broad or whatever. And then like, it turns out that 
like, while that was true, and there are more interesting ways to do it, that, like, once you turn those over to a front office or to, like, McKinsey consultants working in a front office, then it sucks. Right. They just use it to optimize for something, and it takes the, you know, whatever was interesting about it, when it's applied sufficiently ruthlessly, is actually just work. Yeah. Like, it, it looks like business. Yeah, the cool version of it is Billy Bean accounting for the loss of Jason Giambi's on base percentage, not with one guy, but with five guys, five retreads spread over five different positions. The uncool version is the McKinsey assholes showing up in the Astros front office. And and I imagine uh, doing the finger steepling thing that, that evil yeah. geniuses do and calculating that, they, that, there are, <laughs> that there are certain ways that they can get this I don't know if you read uh, Astro Ball or listened to the follow-up podcast, but there's this lengthy discussion of how, um, you know, the, the Steve, Co- I think it's about Steve Cohen, your, your guy, Roth, Steve Cohen, yeah, we love him. <laughs> who in his investing strategy, he, his whole mantra was that he looked for edge. That's why the podcast is called the edge. And the ed- edge is any kind of advantage that uh, he can get in the world of investing through any means necessary, basically. And, and he would ask his guys to uh, rank what, what level edge this is on like a 10-point scale of certainty of, of investment, right? So I have a tip about this aerodynamics company that's getting, you know, that has like a new product, blah, blah, blah. How sure are you? Well, this is a four. Okay, well, that depends. That determines how much money we spend. And nine and 10 are basically, this is a sure thing. And so there's a guy that he, who works for him, uh, this is, you know, years ago, who keeps giving him tips that are nines, 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 tens. And what that, that falls into a category. I don't know if this was an actual term he used or the people used within the company. Um, but the term was black edge and black edge is this is illegal. This is definitely illegal. Like yeah. you can't be this certain <laughs> that that something is real. And this guy's constantly giving him nines and tens. And that's the guy that ultimately went down and took the whole company down, got Cohen banned by the SEC for life from trading securities. You know, the company was fined, whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars. And th- that's the part of that, of the, of the analysis that is in infiltrated baseball in front offices that, that starts to, make the game less fun and less interesting because it's just about, it's not actually about the game. It's about a bunch of arbitrage monsters trying to figure out exactly how they can outwit their opponents instead of just making baseball good. And, and it, it definitely feels like there's edge in substances that pitchers can put on their hands. Can we push the envelope a little bit here? Can we get to that four, five, six range where this gives us a real advantage? And then there's the black edge, which is the spider tack and the boiled Coca-Cola, where this is now just very clearly straight up illegal and and is making every relief pitcher on the Orioles and the Brewers into a 99-mile-an-hour throwing uh, guy with the elite spin rate. And so... Like at at some point, like if you don't, if you decide not to regulate that stuff, you're just conceding the game. You're just giving the game over to that kind of analysis, and that's what makes it feel not fun. It makes it feel like a bunch of robots just competing against each other in a in a weird, like uh, you know, imaginary arena that doesn't have anything to do with audience enjoyment or gameplay or anything else. It's just about competition and winning. And the competition monster is a 
it's like an old figure in in all sports. All these guys are competition monsters, but when the competition monster meets the analysis monster and the McKinsey monster, that's when things get boring. Black edge is a cool phrase, though. It feels it is, edgier right? than a regular edge, yeah. and I want to name my speed metal band. <laughs> Let's take a break and come back and play stupid games with Mike Sure. And we're back. All right, Mike Sure, you're going to have to answer some questions from the Distraction Fun Bag. But first, you get to play a game of Dead or Canceled. You ready to play Dead or Canceled, Mike? Hit me. All right. You know the way this works. I'm going to give you a name. You have to tell me whether the person is dead or canceled. If they're both, dead wins out. You got it? <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. Tell me whether this person is dead or canceled. Former Virginia Governor George Allen, is he dead or canceled, Mike Sure. I know he's canceled because of the offensive term he used on the campaign trail that begins with an M that I won't repeat because I don't want to get canceled. Yeah. Did is he dead? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say canceled. He that is correct. He's still alive, he's canceled, and he's not dead. That, Good for George Allen's family. The racist is still alive and healthy and happy. <laughs> is he like the last Republican politician to get canceled for anything? A great yeah. question. Great like question. Steve King lost, but he lost to a guy who was like, this guy's racism is entirely too overt. Mine is very polite. And like, <laughs> was just like, yeah, you got primaried by that guy and lost. Yeah. yeah. Like Matt Gates is still employed. Like, yeah. you know, what more can Matt Gates do? Like now it's like, now it's like you're not doing your job as a Republican if you're not actively doing cancelable shit like three times a day. <laughs> yeah. If you're not secretly farming Bitcoin with tax dollars, like, are you even governing? Yeah! <laughs> you're not trying. You haven't found the black edge, and yeah, you're not a winner. Exactly, yes. Uh, let's remember a guy. You want to remember a guy, Mike Sure. Ever we can remember a guy. Would you like to remember a guy? I'd love to remember some guys. Your guy of the week to remember, in honor of you, I picked a Red Sox. It's John Valentin of the Red Sox. Do you remember that guy? Of course I do. A key member of the underachieving late 90s Red Sox, uh, who I think hit second in the lineup and um, and had some big moments for that team, for those not that 99 team. Yeah, absolutely. Is he dead or canceled? Is that what you're asking me? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. We had this problem once before where someone thought we were still playing Derek. No, no, we're just remembering a guy. <laughs> okay. he's, John Valentin like, is Christian still Okoye alive. Is not canceled. <laughs> I, believe, I believe he's on the coaching staff of the Dodgers and looking very you know, plump and healthy and all that stuff. All he, was a, he was a good player. He had some really good years for those teams. And, and, and those teams, the, the 99 team that made the... Uh, that was the Pedro game where he pitched in relief off of the... Um, out of the bullpen because he couldn't raise his arm above parallel to the ground and threw six no hit innings against the Indians to clinch that ALDS. And he, Valentin was like, it was the it was he was the two hole hitter in a lineup where like Troy O'Leary was the five hole hitter, and they that lineup was terrible, and they somehow made it all the way to the ALCS and then lost to the Yankees in classic fashion. In a game that that the, end, uh, in the ALCS, the, it ended with a game where the Umps blew three calls in the same game, and the and Fenway fans threw a bunch of bottles and stuff on the field, and the Yankees had to be pulled off. Not the Aaron Boone game, though. That was later. That Aaron Boone is two thousand three. Yeah, this okay. is this is this is a very an overachieving team that had Pedro and no one else on it, and they oh. and they managed to get all the way to the ALCS. Would you say that team was scrappy, Mike? Yeah, yeah, Ooh. they were. I would say they were scrappy. And scrappy, as you all know, means bad. <laughs> bad. If you're going to let the Red Sox fan talk about how scrappy the Red Sox team was, then I get to mention that John Valentin went to Seton Hall and is uh, technically a tri-state icon. And he also was a beneficiary of the uh, the Mets 
uh, baseball hospice services. He played one season with them at the end of his. I was career. about to say oh, he was a Met, right. right? Yeah, yeah. He was a Met. Almost everybody. The Mets love to like take in uh, wandering Red Sox guys at the end of their careers and just give like Brian Daubach or Trot Nixon a, like sort of a dignified semi-private end of their career just like 50 last at-bats in front of me and my fucking asshole friends at the end of a 99 loss season like willing out a fucking oxygen tank to the mound yeah right but it was like they they love to have guys can i I remember can i remember one more guy as long as we're remembering guys no yeah i want to remember brian daubach who was on those same teams also played for the mets at some point he did he was uh, he's like one of the iconic like just why are you bothering having this guy here (laughs) at the end of a season that's lost but yeah, yeah, he um, was a, he he hit twenty home runs a couple of years. He was he was a left-handed hitter who um, who was like oh, significantly overweight and had no athletic ability at all and had no right being on a major league roster. But was a feel-good story because he made the majors at like twenty-eight or something. And he had one at bat in a crucial game late in late in the season, I think in ninety-nine, where he fouled off like five straight pitches and then hit a ball down the right field line to Fenway that was that missed being a home run by an inch. And it would have been a walk-off home run. And then on the next pitch, doubled to left center and knocked in like three runs and won the game. And that was the that was the that was the all-time highlight for Brian Dawback. And everyone kind of loved him for two reasons. One is it's fun to say Brian Dawback in a Boston accent. And the other is that he was just this miserable, like five-legged chair who had no right being anywhere near the majors and like managed to get to the majors and play for it. He was like a he was like a a, a fantasy of like unathletic guys are like, hey, maybe I could make it to the majors too if Brian Dawback. Yeah, like some softball warrior. Yeah, exactly, yes. It says a lot about the Wilpon Mets that like that dude, at when he was 35, that the Mets were like, <laughs> this is a guy who, for one thing, needs to be in the National League. And for another thing, it needs to be with us. I think he can contribute. Yeah, he's got something. Let's open up the fun bag, Mike Sure, This is from Andy. Andy writes in, do you think you've already experienced the most embarrassing thing that will ever happen to you? Have you already experienced it or is it lurking in the future, ready to strike at any second? What a great question. I would say that I certainly hope I have. Like, if the most embarrassing thing that happens to you happens after you're 45, then there, then something has gone very wrong. Like, the, the, <laughs> yeah, you know, like if you bad. get through middle school and high school and the early post-college years and you still haven't hit the most embarrassing thing, like, I would definitely hope, I would hope so. I kind of think, think that it's coming because... When you're young, you kind of have an excuse to do embarrassing shit. You don't know any better. But, you know, you get 40s, you're like, you're a professional. And, you know, you, I wear polo shirts now. It's like I'm very, like, like I pretend to have dignity. <laughs> and there's going to be a time when I completely fuck up. And, like, it'll probably be a tweet. and Or it might happen, like, five minutes in the, like, <laughs> when this podcast is over. Where, like, it, all the all the all the work I went into building, like, a reputation as like a, a family man and a reputable member of society that'll be gone. <laughs> just, just totally, just totally destroyed. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I drank too much brandy and whipped my dick out like uh, at a Christmas party or something like that. But you see, I would say I, I don't know you that well, but I would say that you wear your human flaws on your sleeve. Almost That's too part much of your so. persona. This is true, right? Yeah. So, so I would, I would, I would say like the. When you're talking about embarrassment, that implies that you were trying to be dignified in some arena and then failed or were exposed. And, and I don't think that it, you don't strike me as a guy who's trying to be that dignified. I, I mean, that's public, a long way of saying that you're asking me if I have shame. That's an important distinction. Yes, it's true. Yeah. 
But I, I think that that's like the, the why I would say that to me, like I, I hope. I mean, but I also think that the most embarrassing thing has like already happened to me because like I'm not as easy to embarrass as I was when I was like 15. Like I still had illusions about like being a cool guy at that point. Yeah. And like I'll be honest with you, like I'm wearing slippers right now. <laughs> like I'm like there's nothing left for me. Like this is just what. I, you know, how I am and who I'm going to be. And, like, not to say that I, I couldn't fuck it all up. Like, obviously, Drew is completely right that we're all uh, one tweet away. But, I mean, like, I think I'll do some, like, awkward shit, but I'm also not going to really care it, about it very much. It's true. When yeah, you're, like, I'm when you're young and you embarrass yourself, it's just devastating. It's just utterly fucking devastating. And yeah. you get, like, 40 and 50, you know, you stop giving You turn into an old man. You stop giving a rat's ass. I would say that the answer for this question to this question for say Ben Affleck <laughs> is no, no. The most yeah. embarrassing thing is in his future because he seems to have he's 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 constantly sort of putting himself out into the he's famous and he's constantly sort of like doing things like that weird video that he sent to the woman on Raya or whatever that dating app is that who who like rejected him. And he like made a video going like, no, it's really me. Why are you? Do- Why didn't you accept yeah. my thing? Like that to me, that's more embarrassing. That's a more embarrassing scenario than could emerge in my life. And so, right, you know, like I, I'm, I'm married. I have two kids. I have, my life is smaller intentionally and gloriously smaller than it was when I was 23 or whatever. And so I just can't imagine what could occur. I'm not <laughs> yeah, you're jinxing yourself. JJ writes in. <laughs> But it's also, you're right, it's hard that it's like, I couldn't get on that dating site to fuck up in the first place, so it's like, as it's far fine. as we know, <laughs> you're like, not on it, Roth. We don't know about nah, your secret Ashley Madison yeah, well, profile, you know, they, but give it time. Always looking for blogger, vlogger <laughs> Last one, uh, JJ mix. writes in, Mike, my yeah. dad has a sh- shower door with a handle, and you can either push the door in toward the shower or out toward the rest of the bathroom. My dad pushes the door in, steps in, and then closes the door behind him. I pull the door out, step in, and close it behind me. And who is right, and why is my dad crazy? So I have a specific feeling about this, which is that before the shower, you push uh, to get in. And then when the door is wet from the inside, you pull to keep the water that's on the door inside the shower. So that when you, like, if you push the door after the shower, then the water that's condensed on the yes, door is going to drip down onto the floor. So when it's wet, when you got you got to basically right. you pull it before the shower, the world's your oyster. <laughs> do whatever you want. After the shower, you you only move the door inside the shower, which is pulling it in from yeah, the what outside. If, yeah, but I think the Does getting in See, it's, getting a, in part is really dependent upon whether or not the water is on and hot, and whether or not you can stand in the shower in a place where. Because I've done this. I step into my shower, and the water's not hot yet, so I sort of cower, like, in one corner, like, I, I, I can't touch the water yet. And, like, a yeah. little like a little drop gets on me. I'm like, oh, it's right. still cold. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so... Well, I don't want to brag, but there's oh. enough room in my shower that I can, that I can well, push All right, Mr. Hollywood. The water gets Fine. Warm. I'm just Burton saying. Hanging I'm, from I'm, a I'm fucking pretty successful. rod in my shower. <laughs> Like a working man. Yeah, I turn the water on before I get in, so I would not then, like, if if there was a way to do it in this case, like, then I would open the door out and step in into the water after I was sure the temperature was right. Yeah. But if you're just entering an, uh, an empty, waterless shower space, then yeah, absolutely, go nuts. Uh, 
Brandon Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me and Mike Schur, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com while you're at it. And, of course, Rutherford Falls, created by Mike Schur, is available right now on Peacock, Mike, may, may I ask, is it on free Peacock or on the premium Peacock? I believe that the first three are free, and then if you okay. want more, it's the it's the drug dealer uh, situation where if you want, you get you get you hooked, and if you want more, you got to pay. Oh, it literally worked on us. Wow, <laughs> I, can, I, can, <laughs> right. I promise you that it worked. And you had the gall to 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 slag McKinsey when you are. <laughs> You're indulgent, yeah. similar. Obviously, what a fucking mark I am too. So yeah, like, I'll go for anything. Thank you for coming on. It was a it was a great podcast. We come on again sometime. Yeah, anytime, and congrats on Defector. It's my favorite website on the internet. Hey, thanks. Aww, thanks, Mike. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.